0: Good morning. Welcome, River Church. I'm so glad you could be joining us online again this morning. In fact, not only do I want to say welcome, I want to say congratulations to the class of 2020. You guys have done it. You've done it. You've done it. Congratulations. This morning, we have a special special, special, special sermon, you guys, that I actually had the opportunity of hearing in advance, so I guess I kind of cheated a little bit. It is phenomenal ball, Pastor James. And something that he's going to share is something that the River Church is really about. That is the fact that we serve a relational God. Number one, he's a relational God because he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to down a cross for us so that we might experience eternal life. We can have a relationship with him. He also desired that we would have relationship with one another. In fact, in Ephesians 4, um, verses 2 and 3, it says, Be completely humble and gentle with one another, bearing with one another, being patient with one another, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Peace comes when Jesus comes. That was God's desire, that we would be a people who would experience peace, and that comes through Jesus Christ. He wants us to have peace with one another also. In fact, let me pray for us, you guys. Peace of our nations, as well as through James's sermon. Father God, we come before you right now asking that you would rule and reign in every single situation that's going on. Whether it's been a coronavirus or the situation or incident that happened with George Floyd, we know that this is dear to your heart. We thank you for the fact that you're involved in every single situation. You are Shalom, the God of peace, and we press into you right now. I pray for my brother James, Lord, as he would come and actually give a powerful sermon, encouraging us not to be dismissive toward anyone, but if anything, to be willing to hear people's stories. But we know that once again, it all begins and ends at the cross of Christ. We thank you, Jesus, for being that one that brings us peace, because you are our peace. Right now, Holy Spirit, fall on our brother James. Anoint him as he powerfully speaks the word of God in truth unto us. May we have received deceptive hearts able to receive it well. It's in your precious name that we pray, Jesus Christ.
1: Amen. Seniors, it has been a true gift for me to be your high school pastor these last four years. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for opening up your life for myself and for our small group leaders and for the whole River Church to be a part of your life and for gifting us uh, with your unique self. I want to leave you this one thing. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Continue to put Jesus first and everything else in your life will be a success. I love you all.
2: Through the fire and darkest nights. You are close like no other. I've known you as a father of your voice and i will leave it all behind let me hear the sound of your voice and i'll come running there's something in the sound of your voice that speaks to every part of me when i hear the sound of your voice I was made to love you. It's all I really know for sure.
1: All I am is wrapped up
2: in you, the center of my world. And I was made to love you from my beginning. So
1: morning river church james here your beach pastor and this morning i don't have any jokes and quite frankly i'm not super excited about um, about the day Uh, quite frankly i'm heavy quite frankly i'm my mind is distracted my heart has um, confusion and pain and as we wade into as a church the moment we're in the cultural moment we're in the historical moment we're in there's one thing that I think are a few things we insist on as a church. One, we want to be led by the Holy Spirit. Like, whatever that means. That's a little nebulous, I know. But it's saying, Lord, what do you have us do? What would you have us say? Another thing is we want to lead in love. What would love have us do? Love in the tradition of Jesus. And another thing we want to do is say, how does this square with our sacred tradition? Our scriptures. We, we look to the scriptures for many things, and one of them is to, to anchor us, to give us some sort of a sense in the midst of sort of the chaos of any historical moment, and especially this one, to give us a sense, Lord, what will our, will our way forward be? So as we continue to discuss this question of racism or the question of bringing about ethnic unity in the church, in society, one of the things that we want to do is make sure that however far we run in any direction, that we stop and say, "What Lord do you have to say about this? What do the Scriptures communicate on these topics?" And so this morning, that's all I'm going to do, really simply. And I wish I had a long-form podcast. I wish I had two hours to sit with some coffee, and and just discuss with a few people the nuances of this conversation. But I don't have that. And secondly, I want to be straight up with you. I I've done, I'm I'm obviously a white dude. I've done most of my life in homogeneous beach communities, fairly affluent communities. And this is not a conversation that I'm any kind of an expert in. I've had zero experience personally with uh, being the victim of race, racism. And and so I am, I'm fumbling through this. And so with that being said, here's all I want to do this morning. It's really simple. And it's just to say, two reasons why I think I and we as a church can't sit this one out, meaning we can't just pass by this historical moment and these cries for justice and these cries against racism, whether that's individual racism, like personal feelings of racism, or that's systemic broader systems of racism, whether that's present contemporary racism or that's historic instantiations of racism. Whatever the case is, I'm going to argue from the scriptures today that we can't just get a pass and say, well, I'm not seeing it in my little community in Palos Verdes or Redondo Beach or Manhattan Beach, so maybe I could sit this one out. Why is it that we are in good step with our ancestors in the faith and in good step with the scriptures in seeking the Lord's truth and will and acting um, constructively? to stand against racism and bring about unity. So that's what we're doing this morning. It's going to be a condensed version of a much larger series of lectures I give uh, at Biola and other places. And so bear with me and let's hopefully consider and learn together this morning. So one of these excused absences that, that I have heard and probably used myself at different points in my life quite a bit is this. I don't want to talk about racism, or we shouldn't talk about um, ethnic unity or issues of of race and ethnicity in the church. We shouldn't talk about it because what does it have to do with the gospel? Or it should be talked about very little because the gospel really doesn't have much to do with that. And that's sort of more of a political conversation, and we don't want to do that in the church. Well, I want to just open up the scriptures and, and, and read some things. One of the challenges I give to my students at Biola is... Read in big chunks. Read the scriptures in big chunks and just really let them speak to you. If you're letting the scriptures speak to you rather than you trying to control the scriptures and sort of tame them or put them in boxes, oftentimes you'll hear some things that are pretty surprising and interesting. Or there'll be some things that you've always missed that jump out at you. So let's ask the question, what is the proximity between questions of the gospel and questions of ethnic unity? I want to start with one question. If I asked you, what is the mystery of Christ? If I polled you and everyone in the church or I went down to uh, some sort of a Christian convention, I said, what is the mystery of Christ? What kind of answers would you give? There'd probably all sorts of different answers. The mystery of Christ is maybe the, the fact that he was fully God and fully man. The mystery of Christ is maybe that we have forgiveness of our sins. Oh my gosh, how could God be so forgiving? What is the mystery of Christ? Check this out in the heart of a, one of the most famous letters of Paul Tarsus. He goes into this, and he's talking to a predominantly non-Jewish church. And he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, this is Ephesians 3, verse 1, for the sake of you Gentiles, Gentile is an ethnic category, it's non-Jewish, those of non-Jewish bloodline, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. Oh my gosh, Paul has a mystery he's going to share with us. This is awesome. Let's hold on and find out what is the mystery, Paul. Verse four, in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Oh my gosh, this is getting better and better. He's kind of teasing us with it. The mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the spirit of God's holy apostles. the spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Oh my gosh, so now it's a mystery and it's a mystery that has been hidden for ages past and it's in Paul's historical moment that he's saying, it's been revealed. Paul, get to it, bro. Let's hear it. This mystery is, and what is it? That through the gospel, the good news, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Members of one body, shares together together in the promise in Jesus Christ. Is that interesting, this entire paragraph? And you'll see it. If you just read through Paul's letters and ask the question, Paul, how often do you talk about ethnic relationships? That is, Jew and Gentile relationships. How, how frequent does that come up? It comes up all over the place. This is just one nugget. And here Paul is saying the mystery of Christ, one of the profound mysteries, and there's a bunch of them, Don't get me wrong, there's a just beautiful cornucopia of blessings in the good news. But one of those big ones that just blew Paul's mind is God brought together two peoples, two ethnic groups that have historically never sat at the table together as the people of God, Jews and Gentiles. And that just blows his mind. Think about when Paul explicitly talks about the... Gospel. And I'm turning now to Romans chapter 1, a very famous passage. Paul writes to the predominantly Gentile or Roman church in Rome, of course. And he says this in verse 16, chapter 1 For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Oh my gosh, the gospel. And look, look what is just a few centimeters away from that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings about salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Isn't that interesting? We have the gospel being preached to the Jew and to the Gentile. Paul, why are you bringing this up? What's the, what's the big deal, bro? What does the gospel have to do with ethnic unity? Apparently a lot. Apparently it's central right there. That part of the movement of salvation was not individual. Me and God, me and God connected. That's part of it. But part of it was bringing together people and hurtling over centuries-old boundaries that have held people apart, in this case, on the basis of, in part, ethnicity. So, what does the gospel have to do with ethnic unity, with these matters of racism and exclusivity? Apparently, quite a bit. And this isn't even to discuss the layers of texts that f- uh, fly through the scriptures. For example, as we'll see in my next point, in Acts, if you read through Acts, read it with the paradigm of, I want to trace what happens with different ethnic groups, what the Spirit does through the trajectory of Acts. You're going to find out it's actually a dominant theme in the scripture. Not the only theme, but a dominant one that we can oftentimes forget about. Believe it or not, one of the earliest questions in the first century church was the question of, how can a Gentile, how can a non-Jew become part of the people of God? How does that work? That was the predominant question. Of course, history, after a few centuries, that question shifted and it was no longer asked as the church became much more uh, Gentile populated. But, it was a primary consideration. You see a lot of the New Testament spending a lot of time sorting this through. Okay, so that's the first piece I just want to invite us to consider. And it's really a challenge to say, read some more. If you're questioning why should we be talking about ethnicity in the church, you have to ask the question, Paul, why why are you talking about it so much? Let me give you one more piece on this. Because one beautiful passage, Galatians 3, 27 and 28, for in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, pantescar who eis eis di in Christu Yesu. There's some Greek for you. For all are one in Christ Jesus. That passage is one of the most beautiful platforms from which to stand as a follower of Jesus. But it also can be used to say, to get an excused absence from the conversation on ethnic unity, by saying, see, we're all one in Christ, and generally, People like me, perhaps, when I'm in a, when I'm in a community that I, I sort of am the majority, or at least historically have been the majority, people like me can say, why are we talking about this? We're all one in Christ. Does our primary identity as Christians eliminate the importance of our backgrounds? And particularly those that come from backgrounds that have not been historically enfranchised or given the benefits of a particular community. Let's check this out. Romans chapter 9, in the heart of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Listen to what Paul says. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Okay, so Paul's not lying, okay? He's not saying something to move the audience, get some tears rolling. He's like, no, this is what I'm about to say is true. My conscience confirms it in, uh, it through the Holy Spirit. Verse two, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why, Paul? For I wish I were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. My people. Yeah, Paul, you mean uh, you mean Christians, right? Because you're one in Christ and those are your people. He goes, well, those of my own race or the, of my own flesh, the people of Israel. And he goes on to describe how this group that was a definitely a disenfranchised minority group in the Roman Empire... He, he describes how God has used them historically and he asks the predominantly Gentile non-Jewish church to please share his heart for this group and not see themselves as better or able to just dismiss them because we're all one in Christ. So My point with that is simple. Paul obviously would say your number one name tag, your number one identity when you start following Jesus is I am a Christian. The ancients Christianos e mi, Christianos sum in Latin, I am a Christian. That's what takes precedent. That's what dominates. That is the headline of everything else. But it doesn't delete other identities. And it doesn't make null and void pain that is felt and connections to pain based on our ethnic backgrounds. So this is, this is I wanted to kind of share that with you and just consider it. So again, my challenge, read through the New Testament and ask the question, where does it talk about ethnic unity or matters of of conflict and how the church can overcome that so the next point we'll explore that as well so another sort of hall pass getting out of having the conversation about ethnic unity standing against racism standing with those who have been the victims of racism another excuse sometimes uh, that i've probably made in my own heart and I've, i've certainly heard both years before and even now is all of this stuff right now, it's just kind of a, it's a novel thing. It's a Johnny-come-lately, U.S.-specific issue. And should the church really steer the entire ship over to address it when it's just kind of this new thing? It, it comes, and hopefully it'll go, but let's stick to the things that we've always been invested in as a church. Okay, so that's that's the sort of second paragraph, at least, of, of objection I've, I've often heard, an off-ramp from the conversation. And I want to, again, just look to the scriptures and, and ask, is that the case? Um, and what we'll find, and again, I encourage you to read Acts the whole way through, perhaps, especially the first 15 chapters. But the thesis statement of Acts uh, comes to us from the risen Jesus, and he talks to disciples who ask him a question. They ask him an ethnically specific question, quite frankly, an ethno-geographic uh, political question. They say, verse 6, they gathered around him and said, Lord, is it this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So they're still thinking in terms of a political, a geopolitical um, ethnic establishment of messianic kingdom. And what does Jesus say? He says, it's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set in his own authority, but what should you concern yourself with? And here it is. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Nothing good is going to happen outside of that today or 2,000 years ago. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. The last of the earth. Now, you've probably heard this if you've been around the church. It's a great sort of missions passage. But it's often been used as kind of a geographic, a simple geographic trajectory. So you'll start in Jerusalem, where the disciples were at the time, and you'll kind of hopscotch your way further out, further out, further out, until you're in the furthest stretches of the earth. Well, check out the actual flow of Acts. Where does it start? It starts in the navel of the universe, from a Jewish perspective, Jerusalem. And it ends where? It ends in Rome, the navel of the universe, or the Gentile world, if you will. And all of Acts is actually a progression through increasingly boundary-breaking ethnic spaces. For example, Jerusalem, Judea, much more homogeneous Jewish Christian communities. Then we move into Samaria by the time we get to Acts chapter 8, and we start seeing Samaritans who were kind of seen as like a sort of a not-quite-Jewish, Uh, Not quite Gentile, kind of something in between. If you've read John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well, you see those tensions there as well. In Acts chapter 8, Samaritans are becoming followers of Jesus. And by Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit has led Peter, who is a pillar in the homogeneous Jewish Christian Jerusalem church, takes Peter to Caesarea Marantyma, which is on the coast of, of Israel, and it's a Gentile town, into a Gentile's house, Cornelius, chapter 10. Read it for yourself. But Cornelius is not only a Gentile, he's a centurion. And Peter has most likely never been inside of a Gentile's house before that, let alone eaten with one, let alone called himself a fellow brother with one. And what happens? Peter goes, well, here we are. The Holy Spirit led us here with dreams. I'm gonna give you the gospel, the good news of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, the implications of that for all people. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his whole entire household. So in verse 44 of this action, Peter's there and he's with a bunch of what are called circumcised believers. That's Jewish Christian believers who have only ever eaten with probably fellow Jews, who have only thought maybe Messianic kingdom was for the Jews. And they're with Peter in Gentile town, in a Gentile centurion's house. The Holy Spirit falls and what do they say? Verse 44. While Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. That is the marker of the people of God now, the Holy Spirit. The circumcised believers, meaning the Jewish believers who had come with Peter, were astonished at what? That the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. They're astonished at this moment of ethnic unity that comes about by the Holy Spirit for they had heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter says, Well, surely no one could stand in their way of being baptized. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter heads back down to Jerusalem, and what happens? A lot of believers are former Pharisees who had became Christians. They were like, You went into a Gentile's house, and you ate with him? And Peter's like, Oh, man. Oh, it's a lot more than that. They were offended. They were upset. They thought he had created a a a giant giant problem of purity and they have he crossed boundaries he never should have crossed and what does peter do he stops and he explains what happened and what do they do they shut up and they listen and then they go oh praise the lord then the gentiles have the spirit too we're all one in christ this is crazy now you can see a little bit more why paul would talk about the mystery of christ being the bringing together of these groups that had previously been brought apart was it without pain Oh, no way. There was all kinds of fits and starts and stumbling that happens. Read Galatians chapter 2. Peter is in with a community of Antioch believers, eastern Mediterranean, northeastern Mediterranean, and he's eating with non-Jewish brothers like he always has. Some really kind of conservative um, Jewish Christian believers come from Jerusalem, and they're not happy with that he's eating with Gentiles. So what does he do? He kind of pulls back a little bit. And Paul says, I had to confront Peter to his face and say, Peter, you're blowing it. You're you're moving the wrong direction of the miracle of the new community in Christ. And he has to confront him. What's my point there? There's a few things. Number one, if you're fumbling in this conversation, if you're not really sure what to do, or maybe you've made missteps with respect to, to racism or ethnocentrism or just ignorance on things, guess what? Peter, the pillar of the church, did too, and grew and continued to grow. And and also, I want you to see that these kinds of problems and tensions have always been there. Final point, it's a historical point. I know this is a lot of stuff, but I just want to give a, a solid sort of biblical grounding for this. The time the New Testament is written was not peace, bubblegum, and unicorns in the world. It wasn't happiness and hugs. As a matter of fact, Jesus, if he was crucified around 33 AD in the eastern Mediterranean in Jerusalem, by 66 AD, that's only 33 years later, the largest provincial revolt took place in Jerusalem, and it was an ethno-religious political revolt. It was the great Jewish war against Rome. Do you think this new project of bringing together Jews and Gentiles in, at one table was going to be easy in that context where sworn enemies are being asked to call one another brothers and sisters in terms of ethnic expectations? Absolutely not. So, is our context different than ours? Of course it is. Are the ethnic categories different? Of course they are. Is the challenge of bringing about unity in Christ and standing with those who are hurting and listening Is that the same project? I would argue, I think it is. So as we think about the application and how, what do we go from here? And it's honestly a question that um, I've asked all the time and I I do struggle with. It's like, what can I do? And we want to jump to doing. We want to jump to fixing. That's part of maybe how we're wired. Um, And I certainly, I don't want to just sit around and, and, Um, do nothing, what can we start to do as a church? And I think there's a few things. First of all, as individuals, this might sound so cliche, but I think it's so timeless, that is prayer, that is truly getting on our knees before the Lord and saying, God, God, search our hearts, know our thoughts. We can deceive ourselves so easily with our own biases and our own subtle, maybe ignorance racism that we have that we're not even sure we have. And the Spirit can show us that. So that's on an individual level, I think we could pray. We could pray together. that's why I'm filming this on Wednesday, but tonight we're doing a prayer walk, a prayer sort of uh, gathering in solidarity with the pain of our brothers and sisters of color in this country that are experiencing and have experienced um, for centuries pain. We're walking and praying and saying, Lord, lead us, because I don't know the A, B, C, D solutions, but I trust God does. So that's, I think, where you have to start or we get to start. Another one, and this is something we're doing at the river as well as listening, listening well to all different voices. Like I said, I am a white dude who's grown up and, and ministered all of my ministry in um, beach commu- affluent beach communities. Um, I have not had the same experience as so many of my brothers and sisters that I've been hearing from and talking with and um, watching uh, on various interviews and, and sermons this week. There's this great uh, line, a sermon by Ivan Pitts, Uh, He's the senior pastor at Second Baptist Church in Santa Ana. I watched a sermon he gave this last weekend. It's a great line and it says, I'm okay if you're okay. It's a principle of kinship. I'm okay if you're okay. And, And so if I'm doing okay, but I'm hearing from my brothers and sisters across the country and locally that there is some pain and there are some things they're not doing okay with, then I can't just sit back and go, well, I'm okay. No, I'm okay if you're okay. So how do we come closer? It's a deeply relational thing. I think part of that's listening. And that's what we've been doing at the River Church and trying to do. We're stumbling. One step, and it's a small step that we're taking, is, is listening, is as a community together listening. And, um, and Todd has been in, in conversations, and we've, we've all been in conversations with our different uh, brothers and sisters of color uh, who are fellow believers and just asking, just asking the question, what has your experience been? And I want to hear that. Um, And not assuming that any one person speaks for everybody and not putting the burden of representation on one individual saying, well, you're African-American, you must speak for everyone. Absolutely not. There's so much difference and and so much beautiful diversity within every community. But we want to listen and hear. And and that's actually an active thing to do. And it's not an easy thing to do. There's a lot of yeah, buts, yeah, buts that we often can put into conversations, whether it's with a spouse, a friend, or hearing someone who's claiming and saying, I'm in pain. So we want to listen well. And um, we're actually going to do a little bit of that today. Um, uh, Joseph Hamilton, who has been with us since the start of the church, an incredible brother in Christ who spoke last week, he had a chance to interview uh, one of his dear friends and, and someone who's done worship for us. Um, Robert Dixon, a.k.a. Preacher, Dr. Robert Dixon, who uh, shares a bit of his story. And so we're going to listen in on that uh, at the end of this, and and we're going to continue this conversation and continue actively seeking, Lord, lead us on. But I hope you have a little bit more now by way of of a a biblical foundation to at least encourage you, don't take an off-ramp on this conversation. Please for the sake of love, for the sake of truth, for the sake of justice, for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and for the sake of being true to the Jesus movement. Let's stay in this and honor the Lord. Hi, my name is
3: Dr. Robert W. Dixon, but my friends call me Preacher. Um, I am minister for the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, I grew up with... The marching with dr. Martin Luther King I uh, grew up in Lake Charles Louisiana I grew up with a lot of racial uh, discord a lot of hatred when I was growing up we could only walk on certain streets hmm. if we crossed a certain street we could get hung and uh, I witnessed a lot of beatings a lot of um, horrible beatings as I grew up and uh, you know I also watched I was a teenager and I, I walked and and worked with uh, different organizations. One was called the Black Humane Committee for Action, and uh, we did a lot of marching. We did a lot of a lot of things, you know, to protest what was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, people of every race, you know, w- worked with us. And a lot of a lot of youngsters, you know, and and I look at it today, and I think, my, in my opinion, I think because of the magnitude of what's going on right now, we see. Um, a lot of the youngsters getting involved because it's, it's, uh, it's all over the media. It's, it's, all, it's worldwide now. And, 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 of course, yeah, a lot of their friends are involved, and they may have some type of uh, anger behind it. But I think what's going on with the youngsters is that they see an opportunity to voice their op- opinion, which is really good. But in my opinion, I think it's, it's part of a phase. Because when I was younger, I went through it. But uh, I, I grew it because I went on in life and did things that I thought I wanted to do. I went to the service. Mm-hmm. I came back and became a musician. And, and while I was doing that, a lot of it had phased out, mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that was going on, you know, because I went to different cities. And it wasn't as prominent in some of the cities that I was in, but in the uh, military or as a musician. Mm-hmm. So uh, I didn't have the opportunity, or I didn't take the opportunity to continue to, Voice, let my voice be heard. You know, so and I think that's probably what's going to happen. You know, I, that's just my opinion. I think that's what's going to happen with the younger generation because as you get older, your mind tends to go in different directions. And as long as the the protesting and stuff fizzles out, they're going to fizzle out. You know, and so uh, when you look back at history, you see a cycle. It just repeats. It repeats. It repeats. Now, as a Christian, I firmly believe the only way that we're gonna really grab hold to this because I firmly believe that we can't change anybody's mind. We we can talk till we're blue in the face, we can protest, but people's hearts are where they are. The only somebody that can change somebody's heart and mind is God. So I firmly believe if I'm gonna protest, I'm gonna pray. And I'm gonna pray before I protest. I believe that the church the universal church, that's where the power is, the universal church. When I say universal, I mean every church. It doesn't make a difference what race, what culture, whatever. So come together and begin to pray. You know, I believe God will be moved when that happens because uh, we talk about fellowship. We talk about relationships. We talk about uh, being what God wants us to be, but we're not doing that, not as a church. Uh, that, of course, I'm not saying that no church is doing it, but, you know, as, as a universal church, we're not doing the things that we're supposed to be doing. And I think that's why we have such hatred. Okay. We have so many uh, uh, situations and circumstances that are so negative in this world today because the church is not taking the stand it should take. The church should be the leader of what's going on in the world. you know. And, and uh, I don't think that the church is. So I, I think it starts with the church standing up and beginning to pray and let God do what he can do. And we do what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be praying, man. We're supposed to be praying 24 hours a day and being specific in our prayer. You know, if we have police officers out there that are doing illegal stuff. We need to pray for them, especially for them. Pray and pray and pray till we see a change in them. Because I firmly believe God can't change their hearts. He changed my heart. I was a drug addict, you know. I was doing all kind of wrong out there. And, and, and it's nothing that God can't do. And that's what he calls us to do is to pray. Uh, and and I, I think it's uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says that we should pray for all men, all men. You know, and uh, that's important. If, if, we, if we take our eyes as Christians, if we take our eyes off what we're supposed to be doing, then how can the world do anything? You know, yeah. they, don't, they don't look at God. They look at themselves.
4: Yeah. I, I think, you know, just, just listening to you and, um, you know, we, I talk about the, the generational trauma, Right. Um, a, a part of trauma is this, this overwhelming sense of hopelessness. And I think I heard you say that, you know, once it, things are going to fizzle out and, and that's a result of the trauma, I believe, that you've experienced um, that, you know what, things are just not going to change. Um, and, and then when we talk about the, uh, you know, some of the folks who are out there looting, which I, which I believe is wrong. Uh, Luis, um, I forget his last name, but he was a U.S. Supreme Court judge. He says, um, crime is contagious. Mm -hmm. And when the government breaks the law, um, it invites uh, uh, others to -hmm. become a law unto themselves. It invites anarchy. Mm -hmm. And so you can see that, um, you know, there are some folks out there that are are out of control. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we have to go back to the source. And I think that um, we have to challenge ourselves and some of the ideas that that we have because if I as an African-American man don't think that anything is going to be different I can't expect anyone else to believe that it will be different and if if in my core I think that things are going to stay the same then my attitude my behavior and my actions will all reflect that um and and so uh it just it just means that there is a greater need For dialogue there's a greater need for prayer there's a greater need for revelation for God's Spirit to rest fresh on us to change change our mindsets um, not just uh, uh, mentally but emotionally how we are uh, this baggage that we hold on to Um, but I do believe that change is here and we can be a part of that change if we do as Todd did we press through that 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 wall, um, I think it was Michael Jackson. He says, uh, "If you want to make the world a better place, mm-hmm. then look at yourself yeah. and make the change." All right, all right.
3: Now, you know, I don't want you to think that I don't believe that, that you know change can come. What I'm trying to say is that, biblically speaking, because of sin, we're where we are today. Okay, mm-hmm. that's the bottom line. Sin. And the Bible talks about what's going to take place from now until Jesus Christ comes back. Mm-hmm. And that's the key. Mm-hmm. We're going to keep seeing this until Christ comes back. Mm-hmm. But what I'm trying to share is that the only way we're going to make a change within ourselves or, or try to help reconcile anybody else back to God is doing what we're supposed to be doing as a church. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm saying. The mm-hmm. church in general, the universal church is not operating the way it should be operating. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, We don't even come together as churches. We got a church here. We got a church, a church everywhere, and following their culture. Mm-hmm. How many times do we see churches coming together? Does it make a difference what culture? But coming together and praying together, fellowshipping together, mm-hmm. or going out into the community together. We don't. Mm-hmm. We see each church trying to struggle through their own community with the things that's going on in their own community. That's where the fault lies. Mm-hmm. It's, it has to start with the church. Mm-hmm. We need to get ourselves together so that we can be an example, and we could know, be that that that, that uh. Illuminate Christ to the world mm-hmm. so that others will have the opportunity to see Christ, have an opportunity to repent and mm-hmm. to uh, receive Christ as the Lord and Savior. That's where it starts. Of course, because of sin here, nothing's really going to change, but it can get better. And what I mean by that, it can get better by other people being saved. And when they become saved, of course, their hearts change mm-hmm. Okay, through the Holy Spirit convicting of their heart, through the Word. We need to be doing what we're supposed to be doing, going out and ministering, you know, evangelizing. Not just to ourselves, not many churches go out and walk down the streets and talk to people. That's what we're supposed to be doing. You know, we feed people, yeah, but how many times do we invite them back and say, you know, or how many times do we get their address and go to their house and knock on the door and say, look, you know, I'd just like to talk to you a few minutes, tell you about Jesus, you know, or find out if you have any other needs. Open up our hearts and our minds to them. We don't see that. At least I don't. You know, I mean, the church that, that I'm ministering with right now, and that you are we try to do as much as we can, but that's not enough effort. You know, that's not enough effort. And I think that's not enough effort. My belief is that's not enough effort because people are not digging into the Word of God, learning the Word of God and applying it to their lives. It has to start with us. You know, yeah. That's all I'm saying. Paul
4: talks about that. He says, forever learning but never coming into the knowledge of the truth. Yes. But let me just say, a preacher uh, and I met uh, some... is it six years ago almost six yeah. six years ago he was the first man is that okay he was (laughs) the first man in my reintegration program uh we met he was supposed to go to san diego and uh at another house he was already uh, scheduled there and and we met and in a pizza (laughs) in a little pizza shop had one piece of pizza and a great conversation and Dr. Dixon preacher has been with me ever since. Amen. I love this man. I'm so he is. <laughs> yeah. We don't always. Yeah. Thank you. We don't always <laughs> agree. Uh, but I love the fact that, you know, it's almost like what the scripture says. Iron sharpens iron. We can have conversations and we don't come back agreeing all the time, but we're able to hear mm-hmm. each other's heart uh, in our conversation. Active listening, what we call in therapy. So I appreciate you. I appreciate your words um, and just uh, your life. And, and, and testimony as a person, my, my old pastor used to say, Reverend Murray, Dr. Murray, he would say, the best sermon you preach is the one you live. Amen, amen. That's and true. you live great sermons.
3: Yeah. Amen. And, you know, when we first met, it was like I tell you, when I first heard you speak, you know, it was like God speaking. You know, I knew he was a man of God. And I kept that in my heart and I kept it close to me. And I, I told him, and I'll tell you always, I'll go wherever you go as, as long as the Lord tells me, you know, and it's okay. If the Lord says, go somewhere else, I got to go somewhere else. But he hasn't said that yet. So wherever you go, I'm going. You know? i follow you as you follow Christ. Okay, but we're going to go sit over there then. Amen.
2: Ooh mm-hmm. is my comfort I never will forget that you never failed me.
0: Wow. What a powerful sermon. Thank you, James. Man, my heart is really encouraged right now. And not only that, but what a powerful interview. And even that one sentence that James said that the pastor from Anaheim said, I'm okay if you're okay. The reason that we can say that, you guys, is when we look back in Genesis 127, what does it say? God made man in his image. That means we're all created equal before the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I'm going to take this to a personal note right now. I have to be okay with that because for me, I have, you know, quite a few friends from different cultures and everything, but I have a lot of my white friends who've actually gotten in touch with me and wanted to process. I have about 95% of them that get it, who sympathize, who empathize, and I have about 5% who've struggled with it and everything and say, "Jazz, what do you mean white privilege? Come on, explain that to me. I don't get it. And you know what? There's a part of me that almost wants to be dismissive and look at them and say, what do you mean you don't get it? That's totally you. But I have to be okay when they're okay. One of my buddies came over the other night, and I think we talked until 1230, processing. And I could not turn a deaf ear to him because then that would not be the loving thing to do. So I just want to encourage you guys, be willing to do that with your friends who may be from a different background or whatever it may be from you. That's what Jesus would do. Thank you, you guys. Have a blessed day.